0: May abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Please pray with me. Sovereign Lord, your word is truth. Every word of yours proves true, and you are a shelter to everyone who seeks refuge in you. We ask, O God, that you would bless your word, that you would bless the preaching of it, that you would bless the hearing of it, Lord, that we would store it up in our hearts, And make good use of it. We ask for your help, O God, in the preaching of it. That you would purify the mouth of the minister. That you would let your word become the focus of our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you notice in our reading, chapter 6 begins with a question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The question serves to clear up a possible misunderstanding or twisting of something that the apostle had said at the end of chapter 5. I'm sure you remember it. At the end of chapter 5, and the apostle was showing how God overcame man's sin, his fall into sin, he said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Obviously, it doesn't follow that because God's grace is greater than man's sin, that the men who have received that grace ought to increase their sins in order to receive more grace. That it was not at all the apostle's point, and that is not what we would call a valid inference. Nevertheless, there is a way of thinking that could lead one to find such a conclusion plausible. The older writers called this the devil's logic. And that's because in order to find those kinds of conclusions acceptable, we have to be thinking like the devil. And that's why the question itself receives such an emphatic denial. Here in verse 2, the apostle answers his own question, certainly not. Now the Greek phrase which is, lend- which is rendered as certainly not literally means something like, it shall not be. It's a little bit awkward to translate into English. Both the New International Version and the English Standard Version render it by no means. The King James Version, which is in this case characteristically, uncharacteristically unliteral, says, God forbid. They get the, the substance of it, but not necessarily the literal sense. But whether we say certainly not, or by no means, or God forbid, these are all fine translations as so far as it goes, but what we need to understand here is that the apostle is answering firmly in the negative. And that's why most English translations will place an exclamation point here. He wants them to know that under no circumstances ought they to draw that kind of a conclusion. Matthew Henry, writing on this verse, said this, Opinions that give any countenance to sin or open a door to practical immoralities, how specious and plausible soever they be rendered by the pretension of advancing free grace are to be rejected with the greatest abhorrence. For the truth as it is in Jesus is a truth according to godliness. If I can paraphrase Matthew Henry, no matter how good it sounds, any opinion that makes it sound like it's okay to sin under the guise of grace should be hated. Because the truth in Jesus Christ always is truth that leads to godliness. Therefore, a standard of appraising our questions is whether it is the truth according to godliness. And so the question does not follow whether we should sin in order that we may receive grace. That is not at all the point of God's grace. That's the first part of Paul's answer. And the second part of his answer comes to us in the form of another question, and you see it here in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? This rhetorical question demands its own negative answer. We who have died to sin cannot live in sin. That would be an absurdity. It would be like living in two places at one time. It would be like those Jews we read about in 1 Corinthians 10, living with the Lord in the promised land, in the land of Canaan or even in the wilderness, and at the very same time living back in Egypt under Pharaoh. You see, the two cannot coexist at the same time without contradiction. When Paul says that we have died to sin, here in verse 2, he means to say that we have been lawfully separated from it. That the bondage which sin once had over us, the tyranny which it exercised, has been ended. You know, I once heard of a man who had used up all of his sick days, and so one day he called in dead. Now, his boss accepted the excuse. However, he said, don't bother coming back or asking for a reference unless you happen to be resurrected from the dead. Now, the point of this, of course, is everyone understands that death is a final separation. Even as a spouse is freed from their spouse when they die, so too you are freed from sin when you die. You, Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are dead to sin. You are dead with reference to sin, meaning that God has separated you from it. Now you know that sin has the power to kill you, But sin certainly does not have the power to resurrect you and make you under its power again. So what are we saying? That once we become Christians, we never sin again? No. Let's look closely at verse 1 again for just a moment. The question is, shall we continue in sin? Christians can and do commit sins, We may fall into sin and even remain in a sin for a time. But Christians cannot continue in sin as a way of life. As if they were dead to God and alive to sin. The Christian, whatever folly he finds himself mixed up in, will always find his way back to God. The Apostle John said it this way in 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Matthew Poole, the 17th century English reformer, said that a man does not drown because he falls into a river. Men drown because they do not get out of the river. And this is the distinction we are looking at with sin. Christians do not finally and completely drown in sin. We may fall into sin. However, we cannot remain there. It cannot become the pattern of our lives. We have two good reasons for this. Number one, as the Apostle Paul said, we are dead to sin. We cannot live in it any longer. Number two, what the Apostle John said in 1 John 3, 9, we have God's seed abiding in us. Therefore, we cannot make a practice of sinning. We'll consider this further in Romans 6, Lord willing, in future sermons on this chapter. But for now, it is enough for us to say that in coming to Christ, we have died to sin. Even as prior to coming to Christ, we were dead to God and to righteousness. This is to say that Christ has broken that bondage and tyranny that sin held over us. Just as he did died to deliver us from the penalty of sin, which is death and everlasting torment, he died to deliver us from that penalty, but he also died and was raised again to deliver us from that power of sin. In verse 3, you will note that the Apostle asks another rhetorical question. Or, do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? He asks this question as if the Romans ought to be able to answer it. And it is similar to something he said in Galatians three twenty-seven: As many of you, as were baptized into Christ... Have put on Christ. In both of these instances, he's speaking of our being identified with Jesus Christ, sometimes described as our union with Christ or our ingrafting into him. The point of this question is to remind us that baptism, something which every Christian ordinarily undergoes, speaks of a claim to Jesus Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into his death. That's what baptism says about you. Which is to say that you have fellowship with him in his death. And if Jesus died to save you from your sins, and you have fellowship with him in his death, how could you possibly go around living in sin? You see, all who receive the sign of baptism are pledged to Jesus Christ and undergo a sacred obligation to live for him. We found an analogy to this in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 10. All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Everyone who left Egypt and crossed the sea was thereafter obliged to walk accordingly. They had been delivered and given a typical or a figurative baptism in the Red Sea and into Moses. And that baptism, as it were, created for them an obligation. Now in verse 4 we read further, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. In these words, in verse 4, we see the means, the power, and the purpose of our union with Christ. Let's look first at the means. And by means, I'm referring to something that God uses as an instrument or a means to accomplish an end. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess not only that Christ was crucified and he died, but also that he was buried. And why do we say that? Why do we confess not simply that he was crucified and died, but also that he was buried? Well, in part, his burial was a confirmation of his death. His death was sealed by his burial. In other words, when Christ was placed in the tomb, it showed the world that he was in fact dead. We even have this expression nowadays, dead and buried. As if dead were not enough, but dead and buried. That shows the finality of it, doesn't it? Dead and everyone agrees that he's dead. And here the apostle saying that we not only are dead to sin, but now he adds buried. We were buried with Christ. Being buried with Christ shows that you really have died with him. Just as Christ being in the tomb showed that he really died, you being with Christ shows that you really have died to sin. Now at this point, I may be expected to say that Paul didn't really say that we are buried with Christ through baptism. Or maybe that baptism here doesn't really mean baptism. After all, we've all known someone who was baptized and apparently was not buried with Christ because they were not dead to sin. But I'm not going to say that. There is a difficulty in the sense that the apostle says here that we are buried with Christ through baptism into his death. Here are some things that will help us out. First, John Calvin says this, Paul speaks of the faithful and connects the reality and the effect with the outward sign. For we know that whatever the Lord offers by the visible symbol is confirmed and ratified by their faith. In short, he teaches what is the real character of baptism when rightly received. In other words, Calvin is saying that when Paul speaks of bury, being buried with Christ through baptism, he is speaking of the reality of baptism in those who believe. Those for whom it is not merely an outward washing, but also a real inward change and uh, impartation of grace from God. Secondly, the Westminster Standards explain this, that baptism, like all sacraments, like the Lord's Supper, has an outward and sensible part, water, and an inward grace that is thereby signified. So you have the outward part. We see it when Pastor hypo baptizes someone. We see the water. But there's also an inward grace, and that is signified by that water, but because there is really only one baptism, right? there's not two baptisms, there's one sacrament called baptism, and that sacrament has two parts, we sometimes use the names and effects of one part to refer to the other part. I'll see if I can illustrate this from Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. And in Genesis chapter 17, of course, Abraham is given the sign of circumcision. And in Genesis chapter 17, he has the sign and seal of circumcision. But then in verse 10, the Lord calls circumcision the covenant. Now you understand that circumcision itself is not the covenant. The covenant is the arrangement that God made with Abraham. Circumcision was a sign of that covenant. But because of the close relationship between the arrangement that God made And the sign that he required, God speaks of them using the names and the effects of one for the other. And it's the same with baptism. Because baptism has two parts, that one of them is the outward and the other is the inward. It is possible to have one part of it and not the other. Just as it's actually possible to, so we can have the outward aspect of baptism. I think many popes were baptized I don't think many of them died to sin so you can have the outward part but not the inward part we saw that in first Corinthians 10 many of those who came out of Egypt with many of them the Lord was not pleased right they were all baptized into the sea and into Moses but they lacked something didn't they They lacked the inward grace, which is given by God, the Holy Spirit. Now, it's also possible that someone can have the grace, the inward grace, the forgiveness of sins, the union with Christ, all of the things that baptism signifies and seals, and not having yet received baptism. That sometimes happens, particularly in the cases of adults. Some people will get converted. They they believe in Jesus and then get baptized, So it is possible that these two parts of the same sacrament do not occur at the same time. Now what we must seek, what I want you to consider this evening is how important it is that you having that outward element, that outward part of baptism, that you combine it with faith and ensure that you have that inward grace which is faith in Christ and all of the attendant blessings. So we are, in fact, as the apostle says, buried with Christ through baptism, which is to say that baptism is a means of grace whereby Christ and his benefits are signified and sealed to believers. But from whence comes the power for all of this? Well, this is shown to us here in verse 4. The power is not found, of course, in the water of baptism, nor is it found in the minister, nor is it found in the ceremony itself, nor is the power for this found even in your faith. The power of this is the power of God. Read in the middle of verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father refers to God's power, his glorious power. And we can confirm this by a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4 where we read, Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God. So oftentimes in scripture, the glory of God refers to his power, his might. And here in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, it does as well. It was the glory of God, meaning his power, that raised up Christ from the dead. And the apostle is saying that very same power which God used to raise up your Savior is applied to those who are buried with Christ. And this brings us to the purpose of all of this, which is also here in verse 4. We are dead to sin, buried with Jesus Christ, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now we see the complete figure or the complete analogy. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised again by the power of God. He did this to redeem us from the penalty and the power of sin. But if we are united to him by faith, then we too are dead to sin buried with Jesus Christ, and then we are raised to walk in newness of life. Incidentally, at this point, we should say, suppose we are not walking in newness of life. Perhaps we have to consider that we have not been dead to sin. Maybe we were mostly dead to sin, or caught a cold with respect to sin, Or took a nap to sin. But we must really be dead to sin. If you've experienced this, you know something what I am speaking. You know what it is to become dead to sin. Where you yourself feel like you are dying because of the weight of your sin. It is dragging you down, down to hell and that the reproach and judgment of God Almighty is upon you because you have broken his law and you justly deserve his condemnation and you would do anything to be free not only from the penalty of that sin but from that sin itself. And then comes Christ who came to take away sin. You see, that is what it is to die to sin, that you have been converted you have transitioned from sin and death to Christ and life and righteousness and if we have died with Christ then certainly God has buried us with him that is to say he has put us together with Jesus as if when Christ went into the tomb we went in there with him And if we have been buried with Christ, we can be certain that we are raised just as Christ was. God did not abandon Christ in the grave, neither does he abandon us. Now this phrase, newness of life, means just that. We have a new life. We have a new Lord who gives us a new heart who gives us new desires, who gives us new benefits from the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gives us new power of God in order that we can walk in newness of life. Therefore, we cannot continue to sin that grace may abound. The design, the very design of God's grace to us is the destruction of sin. We who, by the grace of God, have died to sin cannot live in it anymore. Let us pray. Sovereign Lord, giver of life, O Father, that you would make it true for everyone in this room, O Lord, that we would find ourselves dead to sin, buried with the Lord Jesus Christ and raised by your power to walk in newness of life. Oh Lord, that you would stir up in us the graces that the Lord Jesus merited by his death and his resurrection. Lord, that you would revive us and if we become sluggish, if we become slow, if we become stiff-necked, O oh God, that you would be merciful. Grant to us, O oh Lord, by your mighty power the grace to walk in newness of life. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.